0: Hello, and thank you for joining our Morning Commute podcast series on multiple sclerosis. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects in Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Sanofi Genzyme. Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at MorningCommutePodcast.com forward slash ms6. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. You can also find the complete six-part series by visiting morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS. This is the last episode in our six-part series, Eyes on the Horizon. MS disease modifying therapies are an evolving field with new therapies and new diagnostic tools. Our faculty will take a look at where we are now and what the future holds as new MS therapies emerge. For MS, has the era of true personalized medicine arrived? I'm your host, Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. We are joined by Dr. Fred Lublin, who is a Saunders Family Professor of Durology and Director of the Corinne Goldsmith Dickinson Center for Multiple Sclerosis at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. And by Dr. Robert Vermel, a neurologist in the Neurological Institute's Mellon Center for Multiple Sclerosis at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio. Dr. Loveland will begin our discussion.
1: Welcome to our podcast, Eyes on the Horizon. I'm joined by my colleague and friend, Dr. Rob Vermel from the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome, Rob.
2: Oh, thanks. It's so great to talk to you today, Fred.
1: So in this podcast, we're going to look a little to the future. Um, And before we can do that, we need to look at the present and say, what are our current needs? We've made some um, remarkable strides in MS. It's at the leading edge of neurotherapeutics and has been for the last 20-some years, where we now have over 20 disease-modifying therapies. And we're, we're proud of that, but we're not satisfied. So we have a, a number of needs moving forward uh, as we look to the future. Um, things like I would start out with, we have, we have all of these therapies for relapsing forms of MS, but we still could use better uh, um, agents and a combination of better agents and safer agents at the same time, um, and, and having long-term safety information. Rob, where do you see us going? What else are our major needs?
2: Well, clearly we have uh, a need for therapies that slow down the progression of MS. I would put, uh, put that down as probably one of the greatest needs for patients who come into our clinic day after day, in that we have great therapies right now for limiting acute inflammation that is stopping new MRI lesions and stopping relapses. Um, but for patients with progressive forms of MS, there really still exists a need out there Uh, and probably a belief that this is going to involve tapping into different mechanisms than the ones that we're currently utilizing that largely affect the adaptive immune system. The other big need I would say is for repair strategies. Um, So I would talk about therapies that would have the potential to augment repair mechanisms in the nervous system or potentially uh, augment remyelination efforts Uh, and you know, the holy grail of all things neuroscience would probably be to try to restore function. I know it's a major mission of the National MS Society uh, in, in the U.S., and it's also uh, where a lot of the research dollars and brain power are focused these days.
1: Well, I think that lays it out nicely. You mentioned one thing I want to explore a little more because you mentioned looking for agents that affect the innate immune system, uh, which we're going to talk about in a little bit. Um, what about more purely neuroprotective molecules?
2: Well, for sure, um, I, you know I think I've always used the uh, analogy that uh, you know you think about protecting a house in a storm like a hurricane, and there's really a couple of different ways that you could do that. One would be that uh, you put hurricane shutters on the house, so the hurricane's going to come by, but the house is going to be protected. Storm's going to blow past, and and then you could take the shutters off, and everything will be okay. The other way to do things would be if you had some sort of a weather machine that could prevent the attack to begin with. So the treatments that we have right now really amount to that weather machine. They, uh, they stop. They are neuroprotective in a way, if you think of it, because they uh, prevent acute immune attacks on the nervous system, preventing enhancing lesions, preventing MS relapses and attacks of acute inflammation. Um, But it would be nice if we had that other mechanism also, especially since there's probably smoldering inflammation that goes on, and especially, as you mentioned, Fred, um, potentially with the innate immune system uh, at play. And so having therapies that act directly in the nervous system to protect axons and protect uh, myelin uh, that is more of a hurricane shutter type of mechanism would be really useful. We need to evolve first measures for how these might work. And and we've seen some pretty cool trial designs in recent years where we're beginning to test in early phase trials medications which have the potential to protect the nervous system. So I'm thinking of trials that may use advanced imaging measures uh, as an outcome, or in some circumstances might use something like a uh, model system, for instance, uh, acute optic neuritis or chronic optic neuropathy, one particular functional subsystem of the nervous system, uh, as a model in order to test these things. And, and we've already had some early successes, right? So one of the molecules that's been tested, a drug called abudolast which was run by a trial uh, led by my colleague Bob Fox uh, here from Cleveland Clinic. It was an international multi-center trial of this uh, drug called Abutilast, which is a Multiple different mechanisms of action, but is classified as a phosphodiesterase inhibitor and uh, used in Japan to treat patients with asthma, um, but repurposed in this trial using brain atrophy, brain volume as, a, as an outcome measure actually in the trial. And in this multicenter phase two trial actually did show that it reduced brain atrophy in patients with progressive MS, either um, secondary progressive MS uh, or primary progressive MS uh, by about 50% uh, as measured by brain parenchymal fraction, Uh, again, in this small early phase trial. And so if we could begin to design trials with advanced imaging methods, like looking at brain atrophy or in the case of ubutil there were actually other imaging measures uh, that tracked along with, with brain atrophy, things like magnetization transfer imaging or OCT, optical coherence tomography, we begin to develop a pipeline for how to test these neuroprotective drugs. Um, another success story I would highlight is the, the medication clemastine, which um, was tested by the group at UCSF um, out of a large uh, medication repurposing effort, uh, rapid throughput screening of molecules which may have the potential to spur remyelination. And uh, there in a visual system model, actually uh, appeared when modeled electrically using evoked potentials, uh, appeared to have an effect on remyelination when patients were randomized to clemistine versus placebo. So again, I think the clinical trial methodologies are evolving. I think we have a couple of um, very notable success stories and I'm hopeful that um, this will lead to further developments um, in the field of neuroprotection.
0: In MS therapies, there are those that seek to repair and those that offer neuroprotection. Doctors Loveland and Bermel turn to the issue of repair with a look at ibudilast and the anti lingo trials that studied opacinamab. Let's rejoin our discussion.
1: So, actually, I, I like to separate out repair from neuroprotection because I, I think they're different. I actually think they should be studied differently because I worry about washing out an effect by asking a drug to do more than it ought to be. So when I think about repair, I think about something that does just that, that, that either remyelinates or one would hope in the future could generate regrowth of axons. Um, at the present time, remyelination seems the, the more likely goal. Um, although back when I was a boy in medical school, we were told that you know central myelin didn't repair. Uh, we now know that that's not true. We also were told that all the neurons that were in your head the day you were born were, were all you're going to get. Um and we know that that's not true either. Um so so things change, and these things happily change, but I like to think of them separately. And I think that molecularly, um, we've been stymied on the idea of neuroprotection as a true neuroprotective thing, you know, looking at uh, NMDA and 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 other molecules that may be involved in in cell death separate from, and i want to come back to this idea of the innate immune system. Um, but I think that in that regard, MS is, is more like Parkinson's and Alzheimer's and AOS and things like that, where there's tissue dying off and where we badly need to have some strategies to protect that, that dying tissue. And, and it's failed. It's mostly failed because they've been testing it in diseases that are much more difficult to make a dent in including Alzheimer's and 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 true disease modification in Parkinson's, which hasn't happened yet, um, or certainly AOS, which is extremely difficult to treat. And so a lot of good molecules have gone down the path. But I think that's that's a separate approach. And I'm still waiting for some some real molecules to get at that. The the was a little close, although it was still fusselacterase. So it's kind of more sort of immune, semi-immune. Um, but had some interesting effects, and certainly that was a, an important and nice study. But in terms of the repair, and then I think about the efforts that you were discussing that we've made with with like Clemaski, and molecules like that, But we also have the issue of, of lingo. You know, So lingo was a known mechanism for inhibiting uh, repair and the anti-lingo approach, um, which has been difficult, and their latest study was unsuccessful. But... But I'm hoping that that doesn't have the same effect as some of these unsuccessful neuroprotective trials have had in other diseases because it's an important area and that's an important mechanism. And so what they were doing there is to me, an order of magnitude more complicated than what we're doing with our disease modifying therapies in the anti-inflammatory group, you know, because we don't know there what the timing was. One interesting aspect of that was that the, they took a different approach than the Clemastine group. Looked at, say, at individuals who had chronic demyelination. They were waiting a time, whereas in the Ibudil no, and I'm sorry, in the Antilingo, they were going for more acute demyelination. And it's an interesting argument. If you wait too long, do you then put the underlying axon at risk, and you know you'll never bring it back? Versus trying to separate out the repair that happens naturally after an acute attack. The other problem with anti-lingo, while the target engagement was an interesting one, doing it with a monoclonal antibody to try and get into the central nervous system is a little difficult also.
2: Yeah, for sure. I know in uh, in the opacinamab trials, the anti-lingo trials, they wound up having to use a very high dose of that monoclonal antibody because it is challenging to think, you know, how something dosed systemically in a large monoclonal antibody would potentially have efficacy in the CNS. This idea of repair, though, in remyelination, is, uh, it's inherently appealing because we know from pathological studies that oligodendrocyte precursor cells exist in abundance in the brain. And that, in fact, remyelination does occur, especially in early acute MS lesions. So um, you could definitely see um, using uh, electron microscopy or even immunohistochemical stains uh, with light microscopy, uh, the remyelination of axons happening. But like you said, it's such a time-sensitive phenomenon. Um, That axon is at risk if it's exposed. And the faster you can get it remyelinated, the better. Everyone's hopeful that the potential does exist, um, but it, the exact mechanisms and how to attack it, I think the science is still evolving. I mean, I think there are, thankfully, animal models now. So animal models of uh, demyelination and remyelination, such as a modified Cooper zone model that's become popular in a lot of labs that hopefully is gonna spur the development of some of these uh, newly discovered pathways and new mechanisms. Even when trials like the opacinimab or the antilingo trials don't result in a, a drug that's going to market, I'm really hopeful that we learn something from them. And so um, one of the things, for instance, that we learned from the antilingo trials and that acute optic neuritis model that you're talking about is that the nerve cell loss, the ganglion cell loss occurred so fast after the acute optic neuritis event. Within, th- you know, We measured the next uh, sort of a baseline time point and then the next time point was 30 days later. And by that 30 days after um, uh, onset of uh, optic neuritis, uh, the ganglion cells had almost suffered as much loss as they were going to. And so we tend to think of axonal loss, neuronal loss, as something that happens continuously and slowly. But it may be episodic, especially in fairly acute uh, episodes like optic neuritis. And I think uh, timing is everything as we learn from neuroprotective trials and these other diseases like you mentioned, like stroke, you have to get in there really fast. And so I think that we've learned things from the opacentamab trials. I think we know that uh, nerve cell loss occurs quickly. We know that neuroprotection and remyelination are still possible, um, but we need to look for new mechanisms And it may not be a a silver bullet. There may not be a single molecule that we can use. This may be a combination of different strategies that we need to use in patients with MS. Our existing therapies that attack acute inflammation, um, perhaps some neuroprotective or repair strategies, and perhaps therapies um, that are purported to work more in the innate immune system as well.
1: You mentioned the animal models. The beauty of of, um, the animal models are that they're pure demyelinating. Whereas in the MS brain, we have axonal loss as well. Um, and, and that's one of the things that I, hurdle I think we need to get over. We need to make sure we're not trying to remyelinate uh, lost axons. And that's, that's a, a confound on doing these studies. And perhaps either physiology or, or some of the advanced MRI metrics can better identify those pathways that have axons that need to be remyelinated. Now yeah. you, you mentioned a bit about about the innate immune system, and so that, that tell us why you mentioned innate as we we're talking about a, a regeneration and repair and and dealing with progressive disease.
2: Yeah, well, for sure, um, you know, if if we have a day of clinic uh, with patients with MS. It's really heartening to know that we can see patients with early relapsing remitting disease and our existing therapies nowadays are so highly effective and so much better tolerated than um, the earliest therapies for MS. We've made such progress, but those other patients that we see in the course of a day, patients um, who've had the disease for some time uh, and have evolved into secondary progressive MS who have insidious progression of disability um, despite treatment with our best therapies, it's it's those patients, and uh, you can think about it as maybe uh, it's been termed uh, PIRA, progression independent of relapse activity, or um, sometimes we'll call it insidious superimposed progression. But whatever you call it, um, you, you know it because the patient, um, and I think we talked about this last time, is having uh, slow, steady accumulation of disability, um, even on our best therapies. And The pathological mechanisms that underlie that and the physiology that underlies that, um, I think, uh, you know, still remains largely undescribed, but we have some sense that perhaps innate immunity may be involved. Certainly microglial activation has been identified. uh, And there's some hint um, from efficacy seen in trials of sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor modulators and in the anti-CD20 monoclonal antibodies, that these mechanisms may have some efficacy in progressive MS. So we get a hint that the immune system may be involved, that these are not solely neurodegenerative mechanisms. And it's things like that that make us want to potentially tap into new mechanisms of action that um, that may underlie progressive MS.
0: Remember to go to morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS6 to claim your credit and evaluate this program. Working on mechanisms of action related to innate immunity, BTK inhibitors are now taking the stage and showing potential in the treatment of progressive MS. Let's rejoin our discussion as Dr. Burmell takes a closer look at BTK inhibitors.
2: Um, one of the reasons uh, why it's a topic of interest right now is because uh, this class of therapies called BTK inhibitors or Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors um, uh, are therapies that are thought to act on uh, B cell activation, on uh, antigen presentation, on microglial activation, uh, more mechanisms that are uh, along the lines of what we think of as innate immunity. And uh, these are being tested now uh, in progressive MS in particular. And so the use of these things either alone or in combination with other therapies may have the potential to refine some of what we learned about how the immune system may be acting uh, and which components of the immune system may be active in uniquely in progressive MS. We're hopeful that this will help to unlock additional mechanisms. Um, And uh, I think we've had some glimmers of hope from early phase trials with larger ones starting.
1: So That brings us into some of these molecules. Let's talk about
2: about BTK. So what do we know about BTK in terms of mechanism of action? Well, BTK is a tyrosine kinase. It's involved in the development of B cells. It's also useful in affecting other hematopoietic uh, cell lines. And so it's had its earliest use, I think, in uh, some of the uh, liquid oncology domains. Um, And Uh, It's really been under intense study because it's a complex pathway, and the effects of uh, BTK signaling potentially manifold, but uh, suffice to say they involve things like antigen presentation on B cells. This is involved in the production of antibodies. It's involved in the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, cell adhesion molecules, and involved in potentially microglial activation as well. Um, all mechanisms that we think have something to do with progressive ms, though um, you know the interaction between these cell types between T cells B cells and myeloid cells as uh, as progressive ms pathophysiology progresses is probably very complicated and it may not be the same in every single individual or in the same stage of MS. So um, as I think uh, the scientists begin to sort out exactly which components of this mechanism of action may be most useful, um, the clinical trials continue to progress uh, and we're hopeful to learn how these agents might be uh, useful in progressive MS and of course also learn their safety profile. I think that's an important component as well.
1: Yeah, I think for me, the, the attraction is Bruton's tyrosine kinase inhibitors. Uh, the most appealing aspect is, I think, the effect on macrophages and maybe microglia in directing them towards a more regulatory-type phenotype than, a, than an inflammatory phenotype. So um, my hope for them is actually be working within the central nervous system. Um, there's mixed data on whether they get in or not. Um, but but that's how, but the macrophages get in. So those come in from the outside. The microglia are already there. Um, but we, we have, what well, we have one study published
2: and another that's been presented. Yeah, that's right. I think there are at last count, about four of these uh, BTK inhibitors being investigated in MS. One of them published uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, I think this uh, last summer and, and another presented and still at, the phase of things where uh, we're looking at doses and the effect of different doses with these different agents, Um, they all have some unique individual uh, effects, I think. And and so when you're looking at doses, I think it's important to, um, in in these early phase studies, make sure that we find a dose that balances safety and efficacy. And And I think that that's the stage that we're at with this group of agents right now. Um, you know The effect of the therapies that we've seen on relapses appears potentially similar to um, other agents, but an effect on disability progression, we're hopeful will be in excess of uh, what our current mechanisms of action will give us. And so I believe that uh, we're just at the stage now where um, centers are signing on for large scale phase three trials of these BTK inhibitors. Um, mostly to enroll patients with primary and secondary progressive MS.
1: Yeah, that's the group that I'm most interested in this molecule for, I must say. Relapsing remitting, it will be nice to have another agent, but that's not where where our need is. Uh, As you mentioned, our biggest unmet therapeutic need right now is to better treat progressive disease. How about mastinib? Did you hear their presentation?
2: Yeah, so uh, you know this is another uh, uh, tyrosine kinase inhibitor. Um, it has a reputation for downregulating uh, mast cells and microglia, and again focusing on this microglial mechanism and potential use in uh, in MS. Uh, and uh, this particular agent did appear to slow disability progression in people with a uh, combination uh, population of primary progressive and non-active secondary progressive MS. And that's an important distinction because we do want to be focusing, uh, we think, on the group of patients that truly have a need to benefit from uh, from this. So separating out the patients who have non-active secondary progressive disease, that is uh, patients who do not have recent relapses or new MRI lesions, I think is quite important as we select the populations that go into these trials because we do have now therapies that work well on patients with active disease. This study that was reported at the MS Virtual Congress uh, this fall, uh, the Joint Actrums-Ectrums um, you know, Congress tested mastodib in, I think, about 300 patients um, with uh, primary progressive or non-active secondary progressive MS. And you know, again, a dose-finding study um, and uh, did appear to slow disability progression. So I think we're hopeful that some of these molecules, BTK inhibitors, Mastinib as a tyrosine kinase inhibitor could potentially affect microglial activation, uh, shift things more toward, as you were saying, a regulatory um, state and uh, slow the progression of primary or secondary progressive MS.
1: Yeah, it seemed to me they had a second study that didn't confirm their first. Thing. Did you catch that when they were making the presentation?
2: Yeah, and, and that's where I think we really need um, a small dose-finding study is not enough. Uh, you really need multiple trials in order to identify the dose that you're going to go with and then confirm an effect because a lot of times the trials are designed uh, to be extremely sensitive to pick up any uh, you know possible effect that might be there. And so increases the importance on confirmatory trials. And like you said, I think the jury's still out on this one, unfortunately, of whether some of this is going to be confirmed or not.
1: So you made a great point a little earlier and that, that the highlight that when we talk about the unmet need of progressive disease, it's, it's definitely non-active progressive patients because we've always had that issue of, you know, what was the role of the anti-inflammatory effect on their activity, on the overall outcome, which may be why the results were so modest. Uh, that's what we were hopeful for in the biotin study, which unfortunately failed because that was a, a non-active uh, progressive MS population. So, so let's look and see where all this. Oh, before I get to where this all fits in, I do want to mention one other thing on on repair that we ought to talk about because both our centers are involved in this, and that's cellular uh, repair strategies using mesenchymal stem cells, especially neurally directed mesenchymal stem cells.
2: For sure. Uh, so this is a hot button issue. It's uh, you know the idea of using cellular therapies. Um, uh, is of great appeal. Um, uh, there's a ton of uh, uh, interest among patients, especially those who are, frankly, most desperate. Those who have tried everything that we have available to us um, in our therapeutic armamentarium, and they're still getting worse, um, often see, uh, you know, the idea of a completely new domain. Opening up, you know, could cellular therapies, stem cells in particular, be, you know, something that opens up a whole new world of potential in terms of repairing the nervous system? And as you mentioned, both of our centers have been involved in experiments with mesenchymal stem cells. Uh, You know, um, Jeff Cohen ran a large single study feasibility study of mesenchymal stem cells that were autologously derived from patient's own bone marrow here at our center and administered intravenously. So many questions remain, though. Um, I think the concept, the idea of cellular therapy is is so appealing. Um, But the science uh, is still in its infancy. And unlocking, you know, sort of each of the different variables that need to un- uh, we need to unlock in order to make it work, um, unfortunately, I think is further down the horizon than many of our patients need. But I unfortunately do not think that um, the prospect of repairing the nervous system using stem cells is something that's available right now outside of trials. Uh, even though I know that, and you've probably, I'm sure you've encountered patients who have gone places, tried to get, um, you know, what's purported to be a, a repair therapy through a stem cell center or things like this. I personally try to advise all my patients to stick to the research realm for this one and enroll in trials so that we can advance the science.
1: I tell my patients, someone's charging you for stem cells—that's fraud.
2: Yeah, no, for sure. That's—it's uh, uh, it's a plain way to put it, for sure. Um, I do think that the other type of stem cells, uh, the hematopoietic stem cell transplants for uh, immune system tolerance are actually progressing nicely. And I think it's important to separate out that type of stem cell. Um, so uh, the uh, uh, autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation or AHSCT, that is sort of a, a strong use of chemotherapy to um almost wipe out the existing immune system uh, after harvesting the patient's own stem cells and then transplanting those stem cells back to rescue the immune system, almost reboot it, um, and ideally reboot it without recurrence of the patient's MS um, or with a much uh, milder phenotype, I think has real appeal. And there are very legitimate uh, multicenter trials, including one right now that's called BEAT-MS that's enrolling patients. Um, and randomizing them to autologous hematopoietic stem cell transplantation versus um, best alternative therapy, or in other words, the monoclonal antibodies.
1: And we look forward to the, the BMS study. Um, I think that the biggest difficulty with that approach is how poorly we prognosticate early on in the disease, you know, because that would determine how much risk we're willing to recommend to the patient. Um, knowing that early on any of the medications may work. And so that will have to go hand in hand with that sort of approach. So, so let's look at that. Uh, you mentioned that. Let's look at how we're going to apply this, because taking care of MS patients has gotten very complicated, as is now with the therapies we have, arranging how to do infusions, going over the safety and such like that. When we get into this, this the horizon, when we're talking about either affecting adaptive immune system, and neuroprotection or even repair, we, we may have to think about add-on therapies, right? Because we have to turn off the inflammation. Otherwise, you're chasing your tail, right, for any sort of repair strategy. And, and so that was the case, for example, in, in, in the uh, opacinamide trial. They had the all one, I believe, interferon and such. But that will be something we almost surely will have to do at the same time. And the complication there will be, well, how do we know which one to have people on as a base. You know, you think, well, you put them on the most highly active therapy you can, so you turn off the inflammation, you're left with only the need to repair, but then you have the issues of drug-drug interactions and combined toxicities. Uh, And I think that those are going to be difficult questions to sort out.
2: Yeah, for sure. You mentioned, you know, this concept of MS leading the way in terms of neurotherapeutics and um, uh, this is immediately what I think of. Uh, you know, we're so fortunate to have disease modifying therapies that work well in a large component of our patients. And so things are already complicated, and as you said, they're going to get more complicated, and as it gets more complicated, I think we're going to need to rely on things like um, uh, more personalized medicine. And so already at our center when, you know, someone's newly diagnosed and we're going to plan to start them on treatment, we acquire a kind of a routine panel of labs that we call treatment planning labs. It includes everything from a JC virus, antibody status, hepatic function panels, you know, a sc- screening to make sure they don't have any chronic infections like hepatitis or tuberculosis that are, that are uh, latent, blood cell counts and um, autoimmune panels and things that we're looking to uh, avoid Uh, as complications of therapy, things that we're looking to optimize to potentially augment the success of our therapies, like uh, vitamin D level, for instance, tests for uh, diseases which are often comorbid uh, with MS and have the potential to make it worse. So uh, other autoimmune diseases in particular, like hypothyroidism, which is another cause of fatigue, similar to um, one of the symptoms that most of our patients with MS have. And so I think uh, you're going to see, hopefully, that um, this expanse of personalized medicine where we can hopefully analyze an MRI at baseline, look at baseline labs, be able to prognosticate what somebody's outlook is, will help to guide uh, and highlight certain paths that a patient with MS may take. For that patient who walks in our office and is on one of the best things that we've got right now for acute inflammation and is still having insidious progression. Maybe those are the patients where, as you said, they want to go into add-on trials. And maybe our add-on trials will get a little bit more brave. So whereas previously therapies for uh, trials for Abutilast, for instance, or you mentioned the opacinamab trials, uh, allowed patients to be on interferon, or in some cases, gluterium or acetate, to control acute inflammation. Maybe the newer trials will be willing to be more brave and have patients on Highly effective therapies. Now, that involves uh, potentially uh, taking more risk, like you said, and uh, it complicates the efficacy because we don't know oftentimes how these different treatments interact in terms of their mechanism of action. But from a patient's perspective, I think we want to be testing the most modern therapeutic strategies. And from a neurologist's perspective, um, these are the real issues we deal with every day. And personally, I tell those patients, Um, uh, we tell them about any options we have, but also we tell them, you better check in at least once a year with us because the field is changing. And we may have new research trials in six months or in 12 months that we don't have now. We may have drugs in a year that we don't have now. And personally, that's what gives me a lot of hope is that this field is evolving and is changing. MS truly is leading the way um, in terms of neurotherapeutic development.
1: Okay, well, there you have it. The horizon looks to be very interesting indeed. So thank you to our listeners. Thank you to Rob Burmell for this interesting conversation.
2: Thank you so much, Fred. And uh, thanks to Project and Knowledge for putting this together. And thank you for joining us
0: today. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS6 to receive your credit and evaluate this program. This was the final podcast in our series on multiple sclerosis. If you have missed any of the episodes in this series or did not complete your CME-CE activity, you can find them all at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash MS.